0: Welcome back to a bonus episode of Bad on Paper Podcast. I'm Becca Freeman. And I'm Grace Atwood. And
1: today we have Elizabeth Gilbert joining us. Becca's going to introduce her, but we are so, 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 so thrilled that she's with us. This is like a life high recording with her. Absolutely.
0: Absolutely. Before we get into it, this episode is brought to you by HBO Max, a streaming platform that bundles all of HBO together with even more of your favorite shows and movies, plus new Max originals. Head to the show notes to use our link for HBO Max's promo offer, where new and returning subscribers can sign up for a limited-time prepay-and-save offer to save 20% off when they prepay the first six months of an HBO Max subscription. Restrictions apply. Now let's get to the episode. So today, we are so excited. We have Elizabeth Gilbert with us, who is the number one New York Times bestselling author of Big Magic and Eat, Pray, Love, as well as several other international bestsellers. She's been the finalist for the National Book Award, the National Book Critics Circle Award, and the Penn Hemingway Award. Her latest novel, City of Girls, was an instant New York Times bestseller and is a rollicking sexy tale of the New York City theater world during the 1940s. Welcome, Elizabeth.
1: Thanks. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much. We're so glad you're here. Thank you. Like, thank you for saying yes to us. That was an easy yes. <laughs> was
2: not a, this was not a hardship. <laughs> I was delighted to be able to do it.
0: So yesterday in our book club episode, we talked all about big magic and we're so excited to get some behind the scenes from you on that book and on your other books and on creativity in general and, and just all the things
1: let's go. Let's do it. Yeah. Let's get behind the scenes. <laughs> so how did you decide to write Big Magic in the first place?
2: Well, I it was a book. I've never had a longer lead up time to writing a book than that book because I've thought about its themes. I've been thinking about its themes my whole adult life um, because I've always had a very different relationship with creativity than what I see modeled out there in the world and reflected in, in, in popular culture and the way that I hear people talk about their own creative process. Um, we really live in a culture that that glamorizes um, suffering, <laughs> um, that glamorizes suffering, uses suffering as a badge of honor, um, seems to insist that the creative life has to be a life of pain. You know, we really we love the biopic of the artist killing themselves for their work, um, and and it it seems to really just be a battleground of um, a lot of resentment. It just felt, felt like a really unhealthy just a, a culturally really unhealthy model of what it is to be an artist. Um, and there's a lot of arrogance in it. There's a lot of grandiosity in it. There's a lot of pain in it. It feels very macho to me. It feels very um, like German romantic European. Um, and and I, I've never felt that way about creativity. I've always felt that creativity is, is a really generous and generative gift. Um, that it is, um, it can be something that can save your life um, more than kill it. And that if you can learn how to dance with it in a way that has a lot of spirituality in it and a lot of humility in it, it can um, it can transform you in ways both subtle and large. And it just took me a really long time to figure out how to say all that. <laughs> and I think it was after I gave a TED talk um, about the creative process that. Was widely seen. And it was after I gave that Ted talk. I feel like that was my first foray into saying, Hey guys, you know, there's another way to see this. And, um, and because of the reaction to that talk, people started to ask me more and more questions about, um, about creativity. And then I feel like that gave me the courage to sort of sit down and write what I actually think of as a kind of a manifesto. <laughs> yeah. um, I feel like it's the only book I've ever written where I'm, I'm really lo- throwing down the gauntlet and saying, you know what? I think there's a better way to do it, and I think that way is this. And um, I also think it took me till I was older to write it because I felt like I needed to have some more books under my belt to feel like I had the authority um, to come in and make such a proclamation. <laughs> so, um, I, so I, I waited till I felt more confident in my own self before I could do it.
0: And your your publishers like were on board with this. It feels like you. Where was this in in the timeline of your books?
2: This was. Um, post Signature of All Things. Uh-huh. Um, and I feel like that, because I feel like that was the best book I'd ever written, it gave me, and also in a weird way, the most magical. Mm-hmm. Um, the experience of writing, it was the most magical. I think it gave me um, the confidence to do it. But I actually didn't, I didn't get permission from anybody to do it. I just sat down and, and wrote it and then presented it. Um, and, and it's very short also. Um, yeah. So it's not, and the other thing I'll tell you is that I, I this is an interesting thing. that, that that for, for years I was gathering books about creativity, books about the history of creativity, books about um, biographies of, of famous creators books about the links between creativity and depression um, books about like the difference between the way different cultures perceive creativity I had shelves and shelves and shelves of these books and I kept thinking one of these days I'm going to read all these books so I'm going to become an expert on creativity and then I'm going to write this book that I want to write and one day I looked at those shelves and I thought I would rather put cigarettes out on my eyeballs than read even one of those books <laughs> like I this the prospect of sitting down and becoming like studying this thing that for me has always been intuitive, felt like it was the opposite of what I was trying to say. And I, and that was the day that I realized, why don't I just write down and share my experience? Because I've been engaging with creativity for a really long time in this particular way. And why don't I just tell a whole bunch of interconnected, not even interconnected, a whole bunch of random stories <laughs> about, um, about my own experience and, and just trust that whatever comes out is the right thing, and which is itself what I'm trying to say in big magic. I <laughs> feel it would have been the least big magic thing in the world for me to like sit down and write a doctoral thesis on creativity rather than just saying what it feels like um, and what my experience with it has been.
0: Well, that's one of the things that's so wonderful about it to me is is how personable you are in the book and and how chatty and and just like this isn't a serious thing you are about creativity it's not an act it doesn't feel like an academic book like it doesn't feel like taking your medicine where some nonfiction is so hard to read where you're like I know that I I'm getting smarter but like I would rather read something fluffy. <laughs> <You know? laughs>
2: My friend Ann Patchett says something so great one time and I can't even it doesn't matter who it is but somebody had written this huge tome of a very the kind of book that wins the national book award you know it's a big massive cinder block of a book where they had spent you know 15 years learning everything about this and then had given it to to the world and and it was somebody who she knew mildly and she just wrote me in a letter she said so and so um spent 15 years studying this subject and now we all must pay
0: <laughs> <laughs> Truly. oh my gosh yeah you make it so approachable Thank you.
2: <laughs> Thank so, you. I hope so.
0: <laughs> I'm curious. The book came out in 2015, and it sounds like you were working on it long, long before that. Have you learned anything about creativity since then that, if you were writing it today or updating it today, that you would want to include that you didn't touch on?
2: You know, I I feel pretty happy with it. You know, it's funny. I wasn't. It's weird. I wouldn't say I had been working on it all those years. I would just say I had been considering it, pondering it, circling it. I actually worked on it for an incredibly short amount of time. Once I, like once I decided to make it conversational and anecdotal instead of academic and comprehensive, um, I sat down and I wrote, I just, um, I just did it in like a matter of like a month or two. Like it was oh a goodness. really short process. Yeah. I mean, that, that, that conversational tone wasn't kidding. I really just trusted. Yeah. Like, I'm going to tell you the story. Okay, that's it. Now I'm gonna tell you this story. Okay, that's it. And now I'm gonna tell you this story. Now we're done. <laughs> um and there's not a lot that I feel like I would add other than that that my trust, um, the trust that I feel in how much um I think that the essential line in the book is that the work wants to be made and it wants to be made through you. Um, that that to trust that, um, to have faith in that that's only really deepened for me over the years. And I'll give you an example of, of how it recently has. I've been wanting to write another really big novel, like at the level of the signature of all things, and and, and I haven't had an idea. And ideas don't come that easily to me. I'm not like Mr. Idea Generator, you know. Um, it takes a long time for me to come up with story ideas, and it takes a long time for me to write books. And I I was getting a little bit nervous about the fact that I didn't have anything. And at the beginning of the pandemic, it seemed like, well, this is a really great time for a person to be writing. However, I have nothing. <laughs> <laughs> and um, what a waste of a pandemic. Like, I, you know, I'm in isolation. I'm living by myself and, and, and I kept, you know, but I know enough now. And this is what I want to say that I really do believe that creativity thrives in us best when we're at, at our most ease and are at our most relaxed. And it is not an, simple prospect by any measure to be a relaxed person in this culture, because nothing in the culture tells you that you can trust to relax. Um, And even relaxation has been commoditized in a way that it's like, you need to relax more.
0: (laughs) Here are some products to buy to relax. It is exactly that. It is the
1: the highest stress culture that has
2: ever existed.
1: Sometimes I'm stressed about and not relaxing enough, which is like the I'm, opposite of what you're supposed to be. And they want you
2: to, the people who are selling you relaxation want you to be stressed so that you buy their <laughs> seminar or their product or whatever their thing is. And um, I do a lot of kind of two-way writing in my journals. My journals are, I do a lot of, um, I write a lot of dialogues between me and love. Um, and that's a way that I've survived the difficulties of my of my life which are not epic but just similar to the ones we all have um and and it's some, a practice i started 20 years ago and it's very simple i i come with my pain my dilemma my anxiety and i say on the page i need you and then i write back to myself as unconditional love um and it's really easy to to do that because all you have to do is imagine the thing that you always wish somebody else would say to you (laughs) and you write that to yourself like I love you and I'm not going anywhere and I've got you and and I've got nowhere better to be than sitting here listening to you talk and even if you lose everything else you'll always have me like all the things I've been begging other people to say to (laughs) forever (laughs) so I've learned how to say it to myself and and in those dialogues I started to say I'm nervous about the fact that I don't have a book idea Um, you know, what should I be working on? What should I be working on? And sometimes love writes back to me as a singular, as a singularity, as I, And but sometimes she writes back to me as we, um, which I think of as sort of my guides or whatever. Um, I don't know why, but it feels like a we, and, and she wrote, or what they wrote, um, please relax when we've got something for you to write, you'll be notified. (laughs) (laughs) And, And, and I was like, oh, cool. So I actually don't have to worry about this. And, and every time that that worry would rearise every couple months, I'd check in and be like, are you sure I'm not supposed to be doing, I mean, remember it's a pandemic. There's a lot of empty time and they were like, nope, you're good. You're good doing what you're doing. We'll let you know. And, and it's such an incredible thing to have been in this mystical. And I do think of it as mystical engagement with creativity. I'm 51 now, and I've been doing it my whole life. I actually believe them. <laughs> I actually choose to believe them. So I'm like, all right you know and um and my my position in that dialogue is i'm here you know where to find me i'm here um i'm going to stay sober and healthy and take care of myself and i'm just like a servant in a british television series standing outside its master's door just waiting <laughs> when the no, we like when the bell rings i'm ready and um but not anxious just prepared and um a couple weeks ago all of a sudden i knew what the thing is that i want to write and yeah. I didn't come, I mean, it, I didn't come up with There's an idea about something that I read 20 years ago. I don't know why all of a sudden two weeks ago it was like, oh, there's your novel. You know, um, so I got to spend 10 months, well, it's been more because it's been a long, two years since I wrote fiction. I got to spend the last two years not being worried and just trusting that when they have something for me to do, I'll be notified. <laughs> <laughs> and until then, like, Look around the house. There's always something to do. The dishes need to be washed. Um, you know, the, the laundry needs to be done. There's no shortage of things to do. Um, so just do those things, and you know, you'll know when it's time. And, and that's the only thing I think I would add is, you know, that that encouragement to just trust um, that that you'll be told.
0: <laughs> I love that, and I I know I sometimes feel the pressure to jump from one thing to the next thing to the next thing, and like, you know, not to have idle hands, and and you know. Honestly, like I find myself more and more needing to remind myself to relax. And so that's such a level-headed way to look at it where it's not a bad thing to relax. Like you're not going to miss it. It will come to you.
2: Totally. In fact, I don't think it can really get to you unless you're relaxed. I think that's its, its easiest path is into a relaxed mind because then you have the space, you know, um, to be able to do it. And you are a good product of a Calvinist society. If you think that you're not supposed to have idle hands, I have that as well, Yeah. but it's a disease. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Yeah. I just love that you can be that person for yourself. And I think that as a general principle, that idea of um, journaling back to yourself as love is such a, it's a brilliant idea and something I want to implement. I don't know. I feel like whenever I, um, get down on myself, I tell myself like, oh, talk to yourself like you're talking to a friend. But the way that you crystallized it is, uh, it's perfect. And I, I think that we all should take a page out of that book. <laughs> Please
2: do. I've been, you know, I've taught workshops on it. Um, I, I, I'm happy to teach it wherever I can teach it because it's been, and I don't use this term lightly, it's been life-saving for me you know, because I, and I, and I, and I have been loved. I've, I have people in my life who love me, but you know, sometimes they need to like sleep, and, get to sleep <laughs> yeah. and have dinner and be with their kids. And like, there's not always someone on hand to reassure you. And the person who I spend the most time with is myself. And I think that befriending my own mind has been the most important work of my life. And, um, and, and I, and that hasn't been easy because I haven't, I have had a, a mind that veers toward depression and anxiety and uncertainty and shame because I'm a product of a good capitalist (laughs) capitalist society. And I was trained well, you know, so it's not hard to, it's not easy to undo that. But, um, you know, Liz and I have become really good friends, Um, but it's taken 20 years of, of unraveling all of that conditioning that says you're doing it wrong. You're not doing enough. You're not productive enough. You haven't like, look how old you are, (laughs) look at it, you know, look what other people, all the comparing and despairing, you know, all of that has to be really gently unwound by a voice that says, um, well, I love you, you know, and, and I think you're just exactly where you're supposed to be. And, um, and I'm happy to sit here and talk to you and, and be with you. And, you know, I'll be with you through whatever comes. It's just a very, it's a very, it's a very important survival skill.
0: (laughs) So let's talk about some of your, your non-fictitious, non-you friends. After you did Big Magic, you did a podcast around it and you had all sorts of creative folks join you like Brene Brown and, and Cheryl Strayed. And I'm just starting to work my, my way through this. But I'm curious, what was the most interesting perspective on creativity that was shared with you? Like, what? where should we start?
2: Yeah. Um, I'm, I, you know what? If you're going to listen to – Well, I would say listen to two of them, they're all so good. But if you're going to listen to two of them, listen to Brene's and listen to um, Glennon Doyle's. Um, And it's lovely to listen to it now because she wasn't nearly as famous then. And and when you see what she's become, um, I would say the most interesting thing I heard in all of those interviews where I was talking to people about their creative process was when I said to Glennon, you know, something about motive, like, what, you know, why is it that, you know, why is it that we want to do this? Because I'm I'm always fascinated by the fact that there's something inherently weird about creativity. And I use the word weird, like in the Shakespearean weird sisters sense, there's <laughs> something very, there's something very, it's a very strange thing to do. If you think about it, like the only commodity, the most valuable commodity that any of us have is um, our time, our, our hours, that, you know, we are the species that is aware that we won't be here forever. And, um, and yet, generation after generation after generation of humanity choose to take that precious irreplaceable commodity of time and use it to make shit that no one needs (laughs) 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 that no one needed that no one asked for that maybe no one will like that maybe will not have a use that maybe it's like it is such a strange Thing to do. And yet it's, it seems to be the hallmark of our species that we do it. And so I'm always really interested in talking to people about why they do it. And, um, and, and Glennon said something, I don't want to misquote her, but essentially her answer was when I asked her like why she does it, she's like, because I like being looked at, heard, seen and paid attention to. And there was something (laughs) so incredibly powerful for me about hearing a woman say that, um, because that is illegal to say, Um, that is totally illegal to say as, as a woman, Um, as anybody really, yeah. And, um, and she's not a narcissistic person, but, but she was just so honest about the fact that she wants to be heard. She wants to be heard. She wants to be read. She wants to be discussed. And, and I was like, what a relief that it is to hear you say that instead of hearing you say some sort of spin doctory thing. Like, I want to contribute to other people's lives. Yeah. I just felt the honesty of that was so beautiful. And it reminded me of myself when I was a kid. I've always wanted people to look at what I'm making. I, I was a pamphleteer for my little short stories when I was nine years old. I was in the principal's office with that photocopy machine, handing out things to people. I always wanted to be like, look, I made a thing. Look, look, I made a thing. But I think that gets beaten out of us as we get older because it's considered to be narcissistic and, and selfish. So I just loved Glennon just owning that. <laughs> like. That. Yeah, it's so great. I did it because I want to be seen, heard and and respected and talked about. I was like, "Cool. <laughs> Listen to you." I,
1: I wish more women <laughs> would would talk like that. We need to normalize that kind of an attitude cuz if obviously if a guy said it, it would be perfectly fine and normal.
2: Yeah, and it, and when you hear her say that, you think, "Oh, it is if you look at it now to see who she's become in the world." And she's now writing books about being untamed and becoming a goddamn cheetah. You're like, "Oh, you were that a long you time did that. Like you yeah were, you did that this is what you were talking about so um, so yeah I loved I loved that and then Rob Bell who's a friend of mine who's a, who, who he would say used to be a minister but I don't think he's ever really stopped ministering um, but he had left he left the church when he decided he could no longer believe in or teach hell um, his his interview um, and his coaching of a young woman who was working in a call center and wanted to be a short story writer but her days were filled with drudgery his his ministry in that set in that session about how to find creativity within drudgery and how to learn that as he said the action is right here it's not the action of your life is not happening at some distant place in the future when your life has become everything you ever dreamed of the the beauty the action the the feeling of it is actually happening here at the call center (laughs) um and and he he gives this really beautiful it's just, it's quite something. So yeah, um, I'm glad you enjoy I'm glad you're enjoying it and working your way through it.
0: I'm kind of just bouncing my way around. So I'm definitely, I haven't. Yeah, I there's no the, order. I listened <laughs> to the Brene one, but I haven't gotten to Glennon. So I'm going to do that one next.
1: Yeah, that's going to be next on my list too. Okay, let's take a quick break to talk about one of our sponsors. So- I have a very specific quarantine problem. I feel like I've watched everything that there is to watch on TV, but you know what streaming service I'm finding myself heading to over and over and over again? HBO Max. So they are churning out so many new hits with their Max Originals.
0: Yes. So if you're not familiar, HBO Max is a streaming platform that bundles all of HBO together with even more of your favorite movies, iconic shows like Friends and Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, plus new Max Originals. You can stream from your favorite device and download top titles to watch on the go.
1: Yes. So you've definitely heard me talk about it, but I am still not over the undoing from HBO. So I watched this in real time and I was so distraught because I had to wait every week for a new episode and I couldn't binge it, but it's now all of the episodes are available so you won't have this problem. But it has an all-star cast with Nicole Kidman and Hugh Grant and it is a twisty thriller that's going to keep you guessing. It's also beautifully shot here in New York, which made me very nostalgic.
0: On my end, I am currently halfway through The Flight Attendant, so no spoilers. So
1: good. I'm done with
0: that one. And it is one of their Max originals, and I am riveted. It's actually based off of a book, and it tells the story of a flight attendant who accidentally gets entangled in an international murder after a hot date with a man she meets on her flight. It is so, so bingeable.
1: And he is so hot. He is. Um, So I really loved that one too. But if you feel like you've run out of TV, I cannot encourage you enough to check out HBO Max. You can revisit past HBO favorites like Sex and the City, Veep, or Game of Thrones, or you can check out their amazing new Max originals like The Flight Attendant. They have uh, incredible collections of movies that are handpicked by humans with great taste, not just some random robot.
0: And if you're ready to try HBO Max, head to the show notes. And use our link for HBO Max's promo offer where new and returning subscribers can sign up for a limited time prepay and save offer to save 20% off when they prepay the first six months of an HBO Max subscription. Restrictions apply. So, again, check out our show notes for our special link to get HBO Max's prepay and save offer where you can save 20% off when prepaying for the first six months of an HBO Max subscription. Back to the episode.
1: So here's a question, um, which I'm really excited to to know the answer to because um, – sorry, I can't stop smiling. I'm just so excited that you're here and I'm getting Aww. really nervous. <laughs> um, so City of Girls. Imagine how I feel. <laughs> we, we're we being such nerds today. Like I – I love it. I'm love not it. usually so shaky. Um, but City of Girls was one of my absolute favorite books that I've read. I think I, I – when did it come out? A few years ago, right?
2: It came out um, 2018, I don't... twenty no, 2019, and then it came out in paperback in 2020, yep. Okay.
1: I don't know what time is anymore with the pandemic. No, so time like, is,
2: th- there is like, none.
1: I was like, it was either like not that long ago or a really long time ago. <laughs> exactly.
2: Well, I think it was in, in before days, and before days are all one time, yeah. and then now days is also one time, but it was in, yes. it was in the before days, uh-huh.
1: But so that book. What was the origin story with it? Um like could you tell us a little bit about that?
2: Yeah, I I have wanted for years, again, you can see I think you might be getting the point that my books have a long it takes a long time, you know, it takes a long time. They 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 ferment slowly. Um but for years and years and years I've been wanting to write a novel about promiscuous women whose lives are not destroyed by their promiscuity because the fallen woman, the ruined woman um, is a trope of uh, Western, probably international literature, but certainly Western literature. Some of the greatest works of art ever made have been um, books and operas and songs about ruined women (laughs) and destroyed women. Um, Some of my favorite pieces of art are about that, but as a, as a woman, it starts to get tedious to just see one sort of bright, beautiful, intelligent, restless spirit after another take the risk to step outside of what culture and family have taught her um, are the, the meanings of respectability have maybe one orgasm and then have to die. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like under the tracks of the train, you know, like killed by a jealous lover abandoned by and trashed and dumped and ruined. And, you know, and it's just, it starts to just hurt because I think that the reality of women's lives, um, even though women have always been given a very narrow path, and make no mistake about it, culture still prescribes an exceedingly narrow path for what is considered respectability in women. It's a little wider than it's been, but not by much. Um, you know, the reality of all the women who I know and, and love is that um, we actually can make huge mistakes because these, these stories, those classic stories are all cautionary tales and they're meant to scare women. They're meant to scare women into staying in line. And, and they're meant to say, you cannot survive your mistakes. So don't make one. And that is patently untrue because if women couldn't survive our dreadful ju- misjudgments around <laughs> sex and love are terrible, terrible mistakes there would barely be a woman left alive in in the world after a certain age because that (laughs) seems to be like the universal story of our lives is that we make terrible, terrible judgment. We make terrible mistakes. We give our hearts away to the wrong people. We get destroyed. And yet here we are eating a sandwich, you know? Um, so it's, I sort of wanted to write a book that was that, that was like, and yet here I am eating a sandwich, <laughs> you know? Um, and, and I lived through it all and it's fine. And I got to have adventures and some of them were disasters and some of them weren't. And so that's, that's, I wanted to write about that. I just didn't really know how. Um, and then I was visiting my great aunt Lolly, who's one of the coolest women ever who I, who I based Aunt Peg on. And she handed me um, some books uh, that had belonged to my great-grandmother that were, um, they were books um, but written by Alexander Walcott, who was a famous in his day back in the teens and twenties and thirties, um, uh, famous uh, theater critic for the New Yorker. And they were all of his profiles that he wrote of the New York during um, that time in the New Yorker of various famous actresses who I had never heard of because they were all stage actresses and So he would like roll up at the Sherry Netherland and, you know, do a thousand word profile on some British Shakespearean actress who was in New York to do Lady Macbeth and just gossip about the theater world. And I started reading these books and I was like, I want to live there. (laughs) Like, I want to play in that, in that realm. And what better place to set my promiscuous women than in the theater world, um, where, which has always attracted a certain kind of, um, a certain kind of girl who doesn't want to be normal. And um, and that was the origin of it, but it was years before I even started working on it.
1: I I love that. It's really fun to hear, and especially I just loved Aunt Peg's character so much. So it's really fun to hear that she was based on a real person.
2: Yeah, the real the real Aunt Lolly, who's still alive. She's a hundred. She just turned a hundred. Um,
0: Go, Aunt Lolly! Amazing.
2: Yeah. yeah, Aunt Lolly's boss.
0: <laughs> yeah. Let's switch gears a little bit. I want to talk about creativity in hard times. And I guess I'm specifically asking about hard times being 2020 and 2021 and and being in a pandemic and, you know, being in such an uncertain political time. But it could also extend to being in other difficult times in your life personally or, you know, health-wise or anything like that. But how do you think about – you shared with us a little bit, but how do you think about staying creative when the world is falling apart?
2: Um, I think a couple things I kind of want to take to say it in two ways, which may seem to contradict each other, but that's okay because paradox is where it's at. Um, (laughs) but you know, one of them is, um, I hate craft people who craft shame people. (laughs) (laughs) I think craft shaming and art shaming and creativity shaming are so mean. And, um, you know, anybody who tells anybody that they should be, how they should be spending their time and what they should be producing and not to waste. Again, this goes back to that, like Calvinist brutalism, you know, don't have idle hands. Hey, why not use this time when you're, you know, when your nation is under siege to to learn to macrame, you know? Hey, why not? You know, and look, if you're doing that stuff and you're enjoying it, terrific. But I also think, you know, I... I want everything to begin from a place of mercy. And for a lot of people this year, just being able to survive has been enough. Um, And people who have mental health issues, people who have anxiety and depression, people who are home with small children, people who lost their jobs, people who... um, are young and just starting out in the world and oops, there's no more world. Um, people like people, all, everyone's plans just got kicked over like a card table. And so I think it's cruel to say that any, I mean, I think any sentence that be, that includes the word should is mean <laughs> anyway. Um, so the first thing I would want to say is you don't, to, <laughs> you don't have to, you don't have to, you um, don't have to. And whatever it is that you need to do, whatever it is you need to do during hard times or easy times to get from the beginning of the day to the end of the day is fine with me because I know that a human life is very difficult period. Um, and, and it is for everybody and it is always. So that's the first thing that I want to say. Um, the second thing that I would want to say though, is to just consider this um, because I know one of the things that I, that I see that is causing people a lot of pain and during, during the shutdown and during pandemic has been isolation. And um, one of the things that you hear people saying is that um, that we're a social species and that that we're suffering because we're not able to be around each other because we're a social spe- species. And that is undoubtedly true, but we're a very complex species. And social is just one of the things that we are. Um, we're also a spiritual species and we're also a creative species. And every spiritual tradition in the entire world makes a very strong suggestion that at some point in your life you should go be alone <laughs> and um and that it's going to be good for you that it's going to be hard but it's going to be really good for you and every creator in the world knows that going off and being alone is sometimes really essential and what i think is kind of interesting is that when eat pray love was published i heard from people again and again and again saying wishing that they could have the space and the time to go be in solitude and saying, I wish I could go to India and go to an ashram. And it made me laugh when, when not laugh, but like when, when the world shut down and everyone was like, fuck the world shut down, (laughs) what am I going to do? I was like, y'all were just telling me for years that all you wanted was to have some solitude so that you could have a spiritual retreat. You got it. (laughs) (laughs) Careful what you wish for. (laughs) Yeah. Careful what you wish for. And all the feelings that you're feeling are what it feels like to go into solitude. Um, But if you can stay in those feelings without reaching for all the stuff that you reach for to distract yourself from how terrible it feels to be in solitude, something very interesting might happen. Um, And so the only thing that I would suggest is maybe think about that. And, um, and, and before, you know, and I noticed at the beginning of the pandemic was that instantly, because we're very resourceful as a species, we created all these ways to connect so that nobody would have to feel alone. And that's great, but it also might have robbed a little bit of the opportunity to, to, to go deeper. Um, and, and so I would only suggest not if it's going to make you have a nervous breakdown, but I have to say going to an ashram for four months of meditation, felt many times like I was about to have a nervous breakdown too. Um, So I would just say maybe think about taking advantage. Um, Now this, again, if you're taking care of an elderly relative, if you're taking care of a sick person, if you're taking care of small children, like, no, this isn't, (laughs) I'm not talking about you, but if you're, um, but if you're alone and feeling like this is the worst thing in the entire world, I would only say, look closer, Um, look closer because there are treasures in there. There are treasures in that solitude. If you think of it not as isolation, but as solitude. Solitude as a spiritual practice. Solitude is a creative practice. There might be something really beautiful for you to find there if you have the courage to stay with it um, and not to just Netflix your way through it. That said, <laughs> I'm going to go back to the merciful standpoint and say if you netflix your way through it that's also okay. <laughs> There's no way to do life right, you know. So whatever it is that you're doing, if you're still alive, you're doing great.
0: <laughs> I know you're not one for like hacks or, you know, these tips, but I know one thing I feel like I've experienced during the pandemic is is this lack of concentration where I know that doing something creative will make me feel better, will make me, will take my mind off of things, will bring me joy, but like Getting into it is the hard part. Do you have any do you have anything to say to that?
2: Yeah I, can yeah, I give you two, yeah, I give you two. Um one of them is to uh, get off social media um and get off media media apart from uh, because part of the reason that I think I'm not going to say that why you can't focus, but I'm going to say part of the reason why many people I know can't focus is because their anxiety and their adrenals are at 99% because they're firing up because every single second there's a new emergency um, and they're following the emergency and you can't, I mean, it's very, I don't want to say you can't, but it is very difficult for, to create from that space. Um, so I got off social media a month ago with the exception of doing this. I do this thing called the Onward Book Club, um, which is just where I um, assign books by black women and then we talk about them and bring the authors on to discuss. So that's the only thing right now, I'm doing on social media. And um, and I got off it after because, and it, oh, oh, how funny, two weeks after I got off social media, going back to where ideas come from was when I knew what my next novel was. <laughs> so all that time, and and I also got off social media because I was addicted to it. Um, and, and I got, had to get really honest about where my time was going and where my energy was going. And I thought that I could handle it. Um, I'm not saying I'll never go back on, but I'm saying that I started to look very honestly at how much, how many hours a day. And I mean, hours a day was I spending on social media and it's multiple hours a day. Oh
0: yeah. When um, you get those alerts so, on Sunday that tell you yeah. in oh aggregate, it's always like, but what was oh, I doing? Oh, it's horrifying. It's like Like, you find, it's
2: like you just found out that you smoked 90 cartons of cigarettes this week and you don't even remember doing it. Yeah. Um, And, and again, that's not our fault. Like that, it's set up to do that to you. Some very, very smart people spent billions of dollars and lots of hours figuring out how to make you be in that fugue state where you don't know that you're doing it. Right. And so. I thought I could, like all good addicts, I thought I could handle it, but I can't. <laughs> um, so, so one thing is that. So one thing is actually all the things that you're doing to connect you to the world that are making you more anxious. So now I read, um, not that admit, not this week while the capital was under siege, I paid more close attention. But I, I generally now will only look at the news twice a day, um, and I'll read the New York Times in the morning and I'll read it at night. Um, that's one thing. You'll, you'll be shocked to see how much more space and availability your mind has, if you can let go of that. Um, and the second thing is to to set, I call it an art trap. Um, and I I've been, was doing earlier, I did a lot of drawing this year. If you can't do your normal creativity, do a different one. So since I had no writing ideas, I just got a lot of art supplies and I'm no visual artist, but I like to noodle about, I like to do, I found out that like, Essentially, if I, if I figured out what I loved to do most when I was nine years old, that is still the thing that will make me the most happy because kids instinctively know how to regulate their nervous system by doing things that make them feel good. And drawing and coloring has always made me feel good, even when I was a kid, and it still does now. Um, the problem is all the supplies are like in a drawer. And just getting to them, you know, like, it's just like, ah, oh, I got to open the drawer if I want to do this. So I just took my dining room table, which I don't need during COVID because I live alone and I'm not feeding or seeing anybody. And I just keep my art supplies out. Um, so it's, I call it an art trap so that if I feel inspired, I don't have to, there's no extra step to go mm-hmm. get my art supplies. They're actually right there. And the notebook is open and there's a glass in the morning. I put a glass of water next to the watercolors. So like literally it's ready. Um, and and that sort of extreme military creative preparedness (laughs) can sometimes um, get you over the bump of like, oh, it's just such a drag to even begin. So I would say get off social media and set an art trap.
0: I think I accidentally art trapped myself this morning. I was in my office and I was on a conference call next to a big uh, basket of all of my yarn and, and knitting supplies. And I was on this boring call and I was like, I think i will make a hat this weekend. Like,
2: There you go. <laughs>
0: just, just seeing it, <laughs> just being in the same space with it and wanting something else to do. That's I was it. like, oh yeah, that looks way more mean, appealing than this.
2: You, you, this, is, this is the thing like about writing too and about creativity, like when I'm beginning writing a project and it'll be a long time before I actually begin to write this novel that I'm working on because I have so much research to do on it. It takes me a long time to research novels, but the only rule I have is that I have to sit at my desk for an hour. I don't actually have to work. I just have to be around my writing toys, you know? <laughs> um, and, and I'm not allowed to do anything else. And I set the timer for an hour. And at the end of the hour, I'm allowed to get up. And if I've done one sentence, then it's been a great day. Um, so if you can put yourself near, it's like, Put yourself as near to the tools, as near to the, to the items that you're working with as possible. It seems to like, I like to give myself the best chance, you know? I want to give myself the best possible chance to be able to have a creative day and setting an art trap is a really good way to do it. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> oh,
1: no, that's just such a great expression. I'm going to make a little tray that – because I am I, I really don't like to have things out, but I'm going to make a little tray and stick the supplies and then just stick the tray under the couch so next time I feel uninspired, get off the couch, pull out the art tray, and there we go.
2: There you, I love the idea of having – I actually have – I wish I could show you, but I've got like next to every – soft seat in my house cuz you know there's only three places you ever sit or two. Mm-hmm, yeah, Like there's like next to every soft seat I have a big jar of colored pencils, crayons, um so that when I find myself sitting and talk and, and notebook and notebook paper. So when I find myself sitting and talking, it's just right. It's like like you're like you're knitting stuff back. It's like it's it's just right there.
0: All right, let's take another quick ad break. So it has been a rough year, and I am looking for any excuse to celebrate or spread a little bit of joy. So I think that I'm going to do Valentine's Day gifts for some of my single girlfriends. And my favorite place to get fun, unique gifts is UncommonGoods.com. And whether you're shopping for friends or a significant other, Uncommon Goods has you covered with their out-of-the-ordinary gifts that they'll definitely love.
1: Yes, Uncommon Goods is a great place to shop if you're feeling uninspired. They have literally everything from art and jewelry to fun kitchen, home, and bar accessories. They seriously have something for everyone. And so it's not just the same lackluster gifts that you can find anywhere.
0: Yes. So a few of the things that I'm eyeing for friends who I hope aren't listening so that they're surprised. First, they have very cute puzzles. There's a book club puzzle that I got last year, and there's also some really cute feminist puzzles that celebrate voting rights and female artists that I have my eye on. I also am looking at these tea towels with boobs on them that I think are very fun. And I love their craft kits. They have some really fun-looking embroidery kits. And I would be remiss if I didn't add that Uncommon Goods has some great guy gifts for the men in your life. Men can be so hard to shop for. So definitely check out their for him gift guide if you're stumped on what to get a male partner.
1: And when you shop at Uncommon Goods, you're supporting artists and small independent businesses. And with every purchase you make at Uncommon Goods, they give back $1 to a nonprofit partner of your choice. So to date, they have donated over 2 million dollars.
0: To get 15% off your Valentine's Day gifts, go to uncommongoods.com/vop. That's uncommongoods.com slash BOP for 15% off. Don't miss this limited time offer. Uncommon Goods, cool, unique, and unusual gifts. Let's get back to the episode.
1: So going back a little bit to the whole idea of social media, and I I run a blog and, and my Instagram and stuff, so I have to be on there quite a bit for work. Um, right. I am curious because on one hand it's this horrible distraction and I completely agree with you. One of my goals this year is to get off social media for at least a full day every week. But the other thing is that it is also this great little focus group and this instant feedback loop. So how do you, with your writing, with everything you do, how do you balance that?
2: I don't know yet. (laughs) (laughs) I'm in, I'm in retreat from it. I'm in detox from it so that I can figure that out because I thought I had it I thought I was doing it right and I thought that I and I don't have like a social media manager or anything like that I do um like I feel like it would be really weird for me to put stuff on social media that wasn't in my voice or that wasn't me doing it um I I thought I was using social media um now I think social media has been using me <laughs> yeah <laughs> and um and and I can tell by the number, the the sheer number of hours. Like, I also get panicky when I think about leaving forever because I'm like, I need it for my career. How will people know that I'm giving talks? How will people know to buy my books? That may be true. I also know that 90% of what I do on social media has absolutely nothing to do with my career. And it's scroll, 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 scroll. Um, You know, I'm in other people's social media. I'm looking in a lot of what I do on social media. And I'll just say this because I feel like I, It's not helpful, not to be honest, but a lot of what I do on social media is to check and see if I am okay, to check and get my validation, to make sure that this thing was liked, who liked it, to the people who I want liking it, like it. It's like, a. it's been a place where I go to look, to check in and see whether I'm a good person, whether I'm a decent person, whether I'm a liked person, whether I'm an admired person, have I used the correct language? Did I offend anybody? who's mad at me? If they're mad at me, how do I fix it? An enormous amount of emotional energy.
1: This is Um, hitting
2: home. (laughs) You know, a huge amount of emotional energy and a huge amount of checking outside of me to see if I am an okay human being. And um, oftentimes from people I don't even know, but their opinion matters to me. So that can't be good. You know, so to answer your question, Grace, I don't know. I don't have an answer to it yet. Um, I, I, all I know is that it's almost like a 12 step thing. I'm at the point right now where I'm just admitting that I'm powerless over my validation addiction. I'm powerless over like, how the platform itself plays with my mind and makes me just sit there on the toilet scrolling. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm powerless over looking at it when I wake up first thing in the morning before I do anything else. I'm powerless over getting up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom and looking at it. I'm powerless over checking to see how liked I am. Like this is just me very candidly saying, whoa, I've got an I've got a problem with this thing. Um, now that doesn't mean that it can't be figured out how to be used, but it's a very um I'm humbled by and I just want to say in my, this is just me speaking from the eye perspective, it's bigger than, at the current moment, it's bigger than me being able to say, I've got this thing under control and I'm using it for my own benefit and it's not causing me any harm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so um, to answer your question, I don't know. Um, but right now, the only thing I'm doing, I know that, the, that doing the book club is is an offering that I love to do. Um, I'm doing it once a month. I'm ex- I thought I would take a month off, but I've extended it for a few more months. I'm also seeing this huge bloom in my in my work and in my creativity. Without it, I've also seen a huge dip in my anxiety without it. So I'm monitoring that. And um, and if I ever come to some sort of magical, balanced solution on how to do it, I'll let you
1: know. But right now, I don't even know how to do that. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's yeah. really refreshing to hear you say that, though, because I, I was like, well, maybe Liz will have all the answers. <laughs> and-
2: Well, it's such a new powerful um, technology and it's so calculated to make you helpless against its sway. And, and I'm not immune to that. Um, And I'm not immune to the, the ways that it makes you insecure Mm -hmm. so that you go there seeking security. You know, it's, it's a, I respect it. I I respect it the way I respect big waves in the ocean. Now I'm like, that's too big for me to be able to handle. And, 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 but I also want to sell books, and I want people to come to my events, and it's the number one way to do that. So it's a dilemma. Yeah. <laughs> and the answer is, I, I actually don't know.
0: Thank you for being so honest with us and sharing that with us. I I really You're appreciate welcome. it, and I see <laughs> I see a lot of myself in what you just said, and mm-hmm. and we have a lot to think about. Yeah. So it's it's January. We're having a hard year, all of us collectively. I feel like a lot of people are setting goals. They have their big hairy list of goals for 2021 and hopefully some of those are creative. Can you give us a mini pep talk? I feel like this book is a mini pep talk. I feel like this whole conversation is a mini pep talk, but like <laughs> I feel like if people want a pep talk from you, what would you what would your quick pep talk wow. be?
2: Wow. Um uh it's going to start with me being like Kardashian mom, you're doing amazing, <laughs> sweetie. Um,
0: <laughs> Isn't that just all what we want to hear from? like yes. We all need a Kris Jenner. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's right. I
2: couldn't remember her name. Um, you're doing amazing, sweetie. You're doing amazing. And I mean that. Um, and look, I would say that even if it wasn't the, the astronomical madness of this year, my pep talk is just that, you know, a human incarnation is a very brave thing to take on. And and it's a very profoundly weird experience. Um, you know, it's, you, we, here we get dropped into these bodies, you know, this spirit, which we don't even know what the fuck it is. <laughs> but, you know, we get like this, we get dropped into these bodies randomly into these, Families randomly, you know, you, you come into consciousness and you're like an actor who's been dropped into a play that's already three acts in, you know, and all of a sudden they're like, well, say your lines. And you're like, my what, what, what literally <laughs> is happening, you know? Um, and that is what a human life is. You just get like dropped into this drama. It's a, it's a planet full of drama and into this you dropped into your body dropped into your particular family that you spend the rest of your life trying to figure out why <laughs> that's your family you know um, dropped into the culture and the moment and the era that you're dropped into given a certain set of talents but also a certain set of mental illnesses usually um and 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 issues and and then just told to go you know um like all right go do it and you spend your entire life just most of life, just trying to keep your head above water, like in this crazy, I'm mixing metaphors of stage and and ocean right? you know, like, <laughs> um, and 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 you're on this like ball that's sixty nine thousand miles from the sun, this like piece of debris flinging through emptiness, and there's nothing around it like it. There's nothing out there like us that we know of. It is so weird. and And I know that might not sound like a pep talk, but every time I remember that, I relax a little more um, into the universal strangeness of the experience of being a human being (laughs) and no time on earth. I don't think is any particularly weirder than another. Um, And, and yet here we still are. I mean, I know I always go back to this line. I I stole this from my friend, Martha Beck, um, who's so great, but she does this great little routine about how um, all songs love songs are about extreme dysfunctional codependence (laughs) (laughs) and all the best love songs are about that. And, and like her favorite one is um, that old song. I can't live if living is without you. Um, And, and she always puts it in parentheses at the end of them because she thinks it makes the songs funnier. Yet here I sit eating a sandwich. (laughs) And I've quoted that a bunch of times in this already. The world is falling apart yet here we sit eating our sandwiches. Um, Like that relaxes me so much because what it means is everything is insanity nothing makes any sense it's all crazy nobody has the answers we literally don't even know what we are <laughs> you know where we are or why we are what the nature of reality is the closer you get to looking at the things that the mystics have always said and the things that the modern physicists are saying it even gets weirder still because like the modern physicists are saying like oh yeah by the way the mystics were right none of this is even what it appears what even is reality? Like, it's all so fucking weird. And yet here we sit eating a sandwich. Um, here we are. We've made it this far. And you may never know what your purpose is. You may never know what you're supposed to be doing. You may never know if you did it right. Yet here we sit eating a sandwich. And that is our shared human dilemma. Um, and, you know, I'll, I'll say this, that that I used to have a lot of purpose anxiety, Um, and, and I hardly know anybody who doesn't suffer from purpose anxiety. It's another thing that the culture does to make you sick and ill. And I don't even know if it's the culture's fault. Everybody just does it. And, and I'll put it this way, like every single graduation speech in the world is meant to make you really fucking anxious. And, and what it says is essentially this, you have a particular set of talents. You are the only person in the world who has them. It is your duty to uncover them. And once you've uncovered them, you have to maximize them. And once you've maximized them, you have to monetize them. And once you've monetized them, you have to become really successful at it. And then once you've done that, you have to use those powers for good and you have to change the world. Good luck. No (laughs) worries. And it just makes me break out into hives even saying that. It is such an incredibly inhumane worldview. And yet that is the accepted worldview of modern Western society. That is what you're supposed to be doing. So no wonder everyone thinks they're doing it wrong. It's vicious. And the day that I really let go of that was this day when I was, um, I was in California and I had a free afternoon. I was out there for work and I was walking down the street in Venice beach, California. And I saw a man and he was standing at the top of a ladder and he was painting um, a sign on the awning of his store. And he was quite high up the ladder and the ladder was quite obviously unstable. And it made me nervous because I'm a safety queen and I got scared for his life. So I crossed the street and I walked over and I held the ladder because it was wobbling and I didn't have anywhere else to be or anything else to do. So I spent probably like 40 minutes just standing there holding it and he never saw me um, because I didn't feel like that was necessary. I just didn't want him to fall. So I just held the ladder. And I was like, this is as good a way to spend 40 minutes as any way that you can ever spend 40 minutes. And then when he started to come down the ladder, I just moved away and walked away and we never interacted and he never knew I was there. And as I was walking away, I thought, what if that was my entire life's purpose? Like prove it isn't, you know, like who's going to say it isn't who can, no one will ever know what my life's purpose is and what it isn't. And what if the entire purpose of my entire existence on life was because they, whoever's running this thing needed me in sector 17 at 4 PM Pacific standard time to cross, (laughs) to cross the street and make sure that this guy didn't fall off the ladder because he had some purpose. And how will I ever know that that isn't true? And what if, everything I've done up until that moment in my life was me just killing time until I did the one thing I was sent to earth to do. And what if everything that I do after that is me just killing time till I die? (laughs) And I, it made me feel so relaxed to just think that's as good an explanation for my life as any and cannot be proven to be untrue any more than anything else that you could present for what the purpose of my life has been. So in the same way that when I write to love, she says, just relax when we've got something for you to do. You'll be notified. That was me understanding that just relax. Like when there's a ladder to hold, you'll be notified. And until then, eat your sandwich. <laughs> does that help?
0: That is the best pep talk ever. It truly does. That's what we needed in 2020. Like it's fine to eat your sandwich. We'll come get you when we need you. Yes. And
1: you'll know.
2: You'll, you'll actually know. Because it'll be so obvious, like, oh, I have to go hold that ladder so that person doesn't fall down. Yeah. And then, it, and then once you get into that zone, you realize you can see that in like the microbeats of your life. Like, what is my life's purpose? Oh, I have to do my laundry. It's right there. It's spilling out of like, oh, that's my life's purpose right now. I'm gonna go do that. And if, and if there's something better that I'm supposed to be doing, I'll be notified. But until then, I'm going to do my laundry. So it's just like one beat at a time. You can just go through your life that way and trust that, um, that you're right where you're supposed to be. And and when they've got something for you to do, you'll know. And I bet you have examples of your life where you have had suddenly something was very clearly right in front of you and it was very clear that this is what you're supposed to do. And until then, just fill your time doing whatever you like. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I love that. Thank you so much. Um, you have been you're welcome. This has been one of my favorite episodes we've ever recorded. But um, in the true spirit of Bad on Paper, you've earned your own desperation minute. And that is when you get a minute to just tell people what they can do for you. So is it buying the books, following social media, all the things. Give the people their to-do list. Oh,
2: you know what I'm going to say? I'm going to say um, join the Onward Book Club, Um I, we would love to have you. So the Honored Book Club is something that I started. Um, I started it after George Floyd was killed. And there was a lot of requests for people who had platforms to use their platforms, to share their platforms. And I you know, struggled with how to do that in a way that was useful and effective. What is a good use of me? You know, I mean, I can just copy memes and just yell into the machine about injustice and maybe that's, you know, I can be helpful then. But it felt like what I kept hearing people say was listen to Black women. Um, and so I thought, I'm going to start a book club where that's what we do, where we listen to Black women, where we read Black women and we listen to Black women. So um, I assign, um, we've done about, I guess, 10 or 11 of them so far. And if you go to my website, um, there all the videos are there of my interviews with um, everybody from Jasmine Ward to Dr. Brittany Cooper to Emily Bernard to... Um, Lauren Wilkinson just last week, who you guys interviewed. Um, and it's, and it's a range of genres from civil rights activists to novelists to poets. Um, Natasha Trethewey was on to um, uh, somebody who wrote a thriller to short story writers. And and, and the sense that I have is um, let's listen to black women. Um, and then I assign the book, everybody reads the book. And then I do an Instagram live interview um, for about an hour, an hour and a half with the writer where she talks about her life and her work and, and her views, and we listen. <laughs> and um, and that's that's the thing I'm most proud of doing right now in my life. And so I would say it's called the Onward Book Club. And um, you can also look at the hashtag on Instagram, where of course you're not gonna be anymore after you listen listened to this interview about getting <laughs> off social media. <laughs> but you don't have to go on Instagram to see it. You can see the interviews are on um they're on YouTube and they're on my, my website, which is elizabethgilbert.com. And and actually, more than joining us, if you've got a book club. Um, if you have an existing book club, my suggestion would be um, encourage your book club to start reading more books by black women because they're incredibly underrepresented in in the publishing world. They're incredibly underpaid. Um, Jasmine Ward, who is a far, far better writer than I am, who won the National Book Award twice, who is a Pulitzer Prize winner. um, When I found out that she was paid $100,000 for an advance on her novel after having won the National Book Award twice. Um, it's it's an outrage. I make ten times what she makes, and she is ten times the writer that I am. And that's not me putting myself down. That's me just speaking a truth. So, um, if you can encourage your book club to read more Black women, then great. And if you don't know who to read, go to my website, and you can start with all the books that I've recommended there, and, and look at the interviews that that we've done. And um, so that would be my that would be my pitch.
0: I love that. What a yeah. great way to use your desperation minute.
2: It it was more like the desperation four minutes. Oh, it's fine. We're not counting. (laughs) Yeah.
0: That's fine. And you used it for a good cause. So we can't
2: fault you. Um, And the interviews are so great. It's just, it's such a delight and such an honor to get to be able to talk to those women. So um, yeah, tune in.
0: Can't wait. Thank you so much for being so generous with your time and your stories and giving us the creative pep talk we needed for 2021. This has been so wonderful.
1: Thank
2: you. Thanks, Becca. Thanks, Grace. And thank you for everything that you are making and doing in the world. And, um, and you know, just set your art traps, eat your sandwiches, and it's all going to be all right. I
0: love that. I love that. <laughs> thank you.
2: <All> right. <laughs>